0: Well good morning once again. It's good to be with you guys this morning. For those of you who uh, may not know me or I've not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Gabe Etzel. Uh, I serve as one of the uh, elders here at Christ Covenant Fellowship so we want to just uh, thank you once again for being with us uh, here today. Uh, we will be continuing in our study in the book of Amos this morning and so if you could turn there to Amos chapter 3. Um, I realize that uh, Amos is not necessarily a book that maybe uh, a lot of you go to often, and so Amos is toward the end of the uh, Old Testament, uh, and it is uh, a book that we've been in for about four weeks now. And as you're turning, uh, let's just uh, consider what it is that we did, that Pastor Brandon uh, led us in, and that is the act of the Lord's Supper and the significance of that. Uh, remembering the fact that God humbled himself, that Christ humbled himself and came down and cared enough for us that he would actually humble himself to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the fact that we are to have the attitude in us that Christ had as well to live in humility because of that. And so even though today we're not necessarily studying uh, specifically the act that Christ uh, performed on our behalf in his death on the cross, We can certainly learn a lot about the character of God uh, through this passage today. Uh, What I want to do is read the passage, uh, kind of keeping in mind uh, Christ's sacrifice, that uh, it's nice to know the rest of the story, even as we look at an Old Testament passage. But I want to read the passage itself in Amos chapter 3, just verses 9, 10, and 11. So just three verses that we'll be covering here today, and then we'll pray and then we'll get into uh, certain elements of the passage itself. So let's read Amos chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves to the mountains of Samaria, to see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, once again, a time to gather this morning. We thank you for that you have revealed yourself through your word. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we study your word this morning. We know that you have spoken. We pray for understanding. We pray for conviction where we need it. We pray for encouragement where we need it. And in all this, God, we pray for our obedience to you. May we leave this place, Father, in a few minutes, more deeply committed to who you are and to bring glory to Uh, to you through our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So anytime we approach a text of scripture, we want to make sure we're asking certain questions. This would be uh, just consistent no matter if we're looking uh, like we do on Wednesday nights at like narrative passages like in the book of Genesis. It's basically stories that we're reading about or prophetic passages like we have here In the book of Amos that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, we want to make sure that we are asking certain questions of the text, uh, which will keep us from really making errors in our understanding of what's being said and then keep us from making errors in the application. Uh, We want to make sure that we are being true and faithful to the Word of God. And so one of those questions that we want to ask as we look at the text is what does the passage teach us about God, right? Or put another way, what has God revealed about himself in the passage in scripture that we're looking at but we also need to keep in mind that uh, although the 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 main character of scripture is god he is the lead actor uh, we can also learn some other things from scripture as well and so we want to keep in mind that uh, this passage for instance and all passages were written to a specific group of people at a specific time in a specific society And so it's, yes, about God as the lead actor, but also we can learn a lot about ourselves from the study of Scripture as well. And so we would rightfully want to say not just what does the passage reveal us about God or how has he revealed himself, but also what can we learn about ourselves through this passage? What can we learn about humanity that would be then a principle that we can apply to our lives? So don't be confused. We're not the center of the story, right? I'm not the center of the story of the Bible, you're not the center of the story of the Bible. I think sometimes we make that error to make ourselves David, for instance, and, and uh, we're fighting the giants in our lives. That's not what that story's about. In the same way, we're not Israel in that sense. We're going to talk about this as a prophecy against the nation of Israel. We're not specifically Israel, but we can learn something about the very nature of God, and we can learn something about humanity from this passage as well. So let's not make the error about reading... This passage and thinking, well, that's just somebody else and it has nothing to do with me. It probably reveals something very deep about us as well. A little context for Amos chapter 3, 9 through 11. Uh, We've been, again, studying through this, but just as a reminder to kind of where we are. At this moment in the nation's history of the people of Israel, there are actually two different kingdoms or two different nations. You have the northern kingdom of Israel. You have the southern kingdom of Judah. Both of these kingdoms, the the peoples within these kingdoms are descendants of Abraham, and so they are Israelites. They are both claiming the promises of God. They are both God's covenant people, and yet they are a bit of a divided nation between Israel and Judah. Today, we will focus more specifically on the prophecy against Israel, which would be the northern kingdom. You can read more about uh, the histories behind uh, really these passages in First and 2 Kings, if you're familiar with those books in the Old Testament or 2 Chronicles, talks about the significance of these two kingdoms as well. A specific to Amos 3, uh, we have Amos chapter 1 and Amos chapter 2 that gives us some context as well. And so if you've been with us, you know that we've walked through those passages. If you haven't, let me just briefly bring you up to speed of where we are. Uh, Amos chapter 1, if you just turn there and even look at some of the headings, uh, you see that God is talking about some of the coming judgment on the neighboring nations around Israel and Judah. Uh, Actually, Amos chapter 1 and Amos chapter 2, or part of Amos chapter 2, God is speaking about the coming judgment, that the nations around Israel and Judah will be judged because of the way in which they have treated other nations, because of the way in which they have really forsaken what God would have for them, even though they are not God's covenant people, God still wanted them to be in a relationship with him, and we see that they have turned away from God, denying God. So that is Amos chapters 1 and part of chapter 2. Then we see a transition, really, in Amos chapter 2, where God now isn't speaking about the neighboring nations, but God is speaking about Israel and Judah specifically. So Amos chapter 2, verse 4, God speaks against Judah, right? The southern kingdom. Judah's rejection of the law of God is mentioned there in Amos chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, let me read that to you. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes. Okay, that's the nation of Judah. We go on in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Prophecy is set against Israel. God is addressing the actions of his people, their continual rejection of him, and the fact that they have turned away from him. So, for instance, Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Let me read this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. We're going to revisit that in just a few minutes, the oppression that they have of the poor within the nation of Israel. So that kind of helps to set the context of Amos chapter 3. And then last week, Pastor Brandon talked about Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, which is kind of a continuation of this prophecy against the nation of Israel. And so that's the immediate context of the passage that we'll be in today, Amos chapter 3, 1 through 8. And last week, if you were with us, you know Pastor Brandon talked about really three aspects of this prophecy against Israel. He said God had the right to punish His people, God had the ability to punish His people, and God certainly had reasons to punish His people. That's the immediate context that we see in Amos chapter 3, 1 through 8. And just in case you weren't with us last week and you hear the word punish, and you think, why is God punishing? Uh, I think kind of correctly understood Uh, That is that idea of discipline. So very similar to the way in which we'd say a a parent would discipline their children. They would warn them, right, that you're you're going to reap the consequences of what you're doing. Uh, We have a wonderful, blessed, amazing three-year-old in our house right now who um, likes to test the limits of her father and her mother, and her older siblings, right? Hey, if you continue to stand on the trash can, you may fall, you need to get down. And when she looks at you and yells and says no, then it's game on. So, um, anyway, she's very sweet, very kind. Um, So, impending punishment or judgment, right, or discipline that is coming. So we actually see this as part of God's very caring nature that he would call Israel out for their sin and say, this is coming as a result of you continually walking away from me. And so really there should be no surprises for the nation of Israel. They have been warned time and time and time again, and uh, we see them still continuing in disobedience. So we get then to uh, Amos chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 that we uh, already read today. I want to walk through that a little more specifically now at this point. But what you'll see is kind of uh, trying to even think through it in my own mind. You know, again, it's just three verses, but it's like this kind of almost like this funnel or this spiral of, of the nation. So it kind of starts here, and then it's like it's pretty bad, and then it's like, no, it's getting a lot worse down the funnel. And then, like, here's the consequences of what's, what's going to happen. So he kind of uh, refines it a little bit more, the judgment against them as we go through even these three verses. So let's look at verse 9, Amos chapter 3. And uh, consider really even the oddity of the statement itself to begin verse 9. Uh, the oddity of the statement and really the oddity of who it's being asked of here in Amos 3.9. It, it reads, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves to the mountain of Samaria to see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. You'll notice God is calling two witnesses, two witnesses to come and see what's happening in Samaria. Now, um, let's start with the idea of Samaria. You might say, what is Samaria? Well, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom, the capital city of Israel. You're probably familiar with the, the city of Jerusalem. And you think, well, I thought Jerusalem was the capital city. Remember, two separate kingdoms right now. So Jerusalem would have been in the center, really, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Uh, The the two witnesses that God is calling here then to the capital city to see what's happening are not two friends of the nation of Israel. So proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod. You might say, I don't remember that um, place or that people group or what even is that. It's actually the capital city of the Philistines. And so if you remember, if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that the Philistines are not necessarily the friends of the nation of Israel, right? And so uh, think of some of your Bible stories from the Old Testament. You have like Samson, right? He fought against the Philistines. You're like, okay, that, that didn't go well typically, right? So Samson and then like Samuel the prophet, if you remember Samuel the prophet, Like a lot of his prophecies dealt with the nation of Israel in the the time when the Philistines were invading and doing some other things. King Saul, right, the first king of really what at that point would have been the combined kingdoms, right, uh, of the Israelites. King Saul actually died in battle as he was fighting against the Philistines. And even King David often would fight against the Philistines. He had a kind of an interesting relationship with the Philistines if you uh, read through the story of King David, but Goliath for instance was a Philistine and so you see that he is fighting against them. So the Philistines were certainly not friends of the nation of Israel. And then the second phrase there, the second witness, the strongholds in the land of Egypt. Uh, Most of you I think would be familiar with Egypt and the um, interesting relationship they had with the nation of Israel. Uh, Certainly, by this point in the nation's history, uh, the nation of Israel, actually, that people group had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, right? So they would not have had fond memories of the nation of the Egyptians, and it would be hard-pressed probably to mention Egypt without that coming to the mind of the Israelites. And so God is summoning two witnesses to come see what's happening in the capital city of Israel, and these witnesses are not friends of the nation, One commentator puts it this way when he describes the significance of these witnesses. He says, Above all, their reputations for injustice and brutality would would have been resented by the Israelites, who would consider themselves in every way morally superior to those whom God has summoned as witnesses. What Amos intends in this startling device of sending heralds to summon representatives of two pagan nations to witness Israel's corruption is twofold. First of all, to spotlight the depths of decadence or depravity to which God's people have sunk, in that nations which are the epitome of evil will judge their misconduct, and, number two, to show that covenant law is not the only criterion for testing Israel's behavior, but that by any standards of international decency, they have become culprits. Now, I know I've had time to kind of meditate that on that, and that was a, maybe a lot to, to take in, but just one more time. The, the two things that would have shocked them, right, is this is how low you have sunk. Th- these are the nations I'm bringing in to kind of show you how far you have sung the epitome of evil, and these are the witnesses I'm bringing against you to see what you've done. And secondly, just because you're my covenant people does not mean you're without excuse and you're licensed to do whatever you want to do. There are consequences even from foreign nations know that you're not doing right. So, as I was preparing for today, I was actually uh, trying to have others help me, like, help me think of maybe modern day examples of, of how bad this had gotten. And so um, I thought of a couple examples, some of which I should not share because they are political in nature, and so I will not. Uh, but here's a for instance, if McDonald's and Burger King are brought in to help you decide what a nutritious burger looks like, that's a bad place, Right? I'm not saying they're not good. I'm just saying nutritional value, right? If Shaquille O'Neal and Dennis Rodman are critiquing your free throws, you're in a bad place, right? This is not good. That's a, a very bad place to be if coach calls them over. On a little more serious note, if the Taliban and ISIS are called in to see how you are handling situations, And to witness inhumanity within your society, that's a bad place. And I think actually that one probably is similar to what's happening here. No, no, we're, we're way superior to those societies. And yet God's saying, this is what you've become. This is what my covenant people have become. Israel is in a very bad place in this part of their history. And look at what it is that God has called them in. To witness. Consider what Egypt and the Philistines are to witness in the capital city. The great tumult within her, the oppressed in her midst. This idea here is of panic. The idea is of oppression. It's like God is saying, come over to Samaria. Get a good seat so you'll see what's happening. Be my witnesses. Look at the great panic and the confusion within her. Look at the way in which they oppress their people. Instead of order, we see panic. Instead of justice being poured out, we see oppression. That's what the nation of Israel had become. Uh, The oppression spoken of is likely the oppression of the poor. And you say, well, where do you get that? Are you just making that up? Is that just something that you would say because it would maybe preach in our society today? Well, earlier on in the book of Amos, we see kind of these horrific acts that were being carried out by the nation of Israel. And so I, I read just briefly, but turn back a chapter to Amos chapter 2. Uh, I want to read verses 6 through 8. I'd already read verse 6, but let me read 6 through 8 just as an example of what the people of Israel were doing at this time. Amos chapter 2, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for fault, four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. See this oppression that's happening. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. We see sexual immorality rampant within the society. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those Who have been fined? We see that they are discarding right the law of God and the things of God. We see this in the oppression of the poor. We see that in the sexual immorality in which they had been participating. And we say this is a far cry from the people that God called out as His very own. And so, as I mentioned on Wednesday nights, for instance, we're going through the Book of Genesis, and part of what we learn in the Book of Genesis certainly the creation of the world and the first couple chapters of Genesis, and then we see really the creation of nations, and then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and we see that God calls out a people group for his own. And so, let me read to you what this nation was supposed to be doing when God called Abram and later named Abraham, what he was calling him to do, the reason that God was setting aside this nation or this people group for his name. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me just read that for you. Later we see in Genesis chapters 15 and chapter 17 that God kind of reaffirms this covenant with Abraham, and every time that he does, he talks about the significance of the land that he has given them, and he talks about the significance of bringing him out from these other people, and the importance of Abram and his descendants being faithful to the teachings of God, the importance of them following the laws of God so that they would be an example of what to do to the other nations. So God is setting them aside, right, so that they would not be corrupted from those nations, but also setting them aside as an example of what to do. And yet we read here in the book of Amos that they are actually being looked at by evil and corrupt other nations. Of Look how bad they've become, right? So that just hopefully sinks in a little bit, the depravity and the destruction that we see within that society. And so then to take it just down that funnel a little bit further, we look at verse 10. Amos chapter 3, back in Amos verse 10. We, we see the two witnesses. We see that they're brought in. God now elaborates a little bit on what it is they are looking at. Amos chapter 3 verse 10 reads, They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. This is a description of the nation of Israel. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. This is a statement of really the total abandonment of anything that would be considered godly and holy. This is how far down they have sunk. The nation of Israel had completely lost their way. Now imagine that being said of a society, right? That they had completely abandoned their God. They had completely lost their way. Um, I will resist the urge to make modern day comparisons at this point, right? Because again, this text is about a specific group of people, God's covenant people, and yet I will say, that unfortunately I think we see ways in which a gradual progression down can get us to a point where we see where people can completely lose their way. Right? We, We have seen this throughout the course of human history and unfortunately even in modern day we see this happening as well where we can get very far from where we started. Really even to the point where we don't even recognize what we're doing is wrong scary place to be don't even recognize the fact that what we're doing is wrong so no sense of right and wrong no sense of taking responsibilities for others within the society the oppression of the poor no sense about caring for the needs of others all that was completely gone the very moral fabric fabric sorry of the society was completely missing and what god says they were doing is actually there the last phrase Two phrases in uh, verse 10, they're storing up actually violence and robbery or destruction within their strongholds. The, the very way in which they were going about uh, oppressing other people was, meant that they're actually storing up the wrong things for themselves. They probably thought that they were gathering more defenses, right? Maybe they were gaining wealth or power or influence, but God said, really what you're gaining is your own destruction by acting this way. Again, let's take a look at what God would have intended that nation to be doing, right? A nation that now is described as having completely lost their way. They don't know right from wrong. They're storing up for themselves violence and destruction. And yet this was not the intention. So let's turn back to, again, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and read just a little description of what it is they were supposed to be doing within their society. So turn back to Deuteronomy. This is a passage I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's it's a uh, common one to go to that talks about the significance of really training generations in the ways of God. So Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy would have been written at a time uh, right before the nation enters into the promised land. Okay, and so uh, Moses was its author, Moses is leading the people out of, the, uh, out of Egypt, the exodus happens during this time, and so God is uh, helping the nation know what their history is and what they are to be doing, and so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see uh, these words, all right, I'm going to start in verse 1. And read through verse 9. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it. So, when you're in the land, this is the thing you need to be doing. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, for generations, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I have commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey, in a land of abundance, that it may go well with you. And so, verses 4 through 9, this is what you're to be doing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. We see the centrality of the word of God, the statutes of God, and how that was to be the very foundation and center of the family within the Israelite uh, community. Right, The centrality of the family in teaching the commands of God, the significance the people were to be training their children for generations to come that it may go well with them that they may live long in that land that God had provided for them. We know elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, God basically says, hey, when you get in there and things are going really well and you're really comfortable, don't forget me. Don't forget that I'm the one who put you in there. Don't forget that I'm the one who provided these things. Don't forget that I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And yet we see in the nation, uh, the history of the nation of Israel, the continual, continual uh, disregard for the things of God. And so God has, it seems, gotten to the point where he's bringing witnesses against them. He's showing them how bad they had become. He's explaining to them that you don't even know right from wrong, and you're storing up for yourselves violence. And that brings us to verse 11 of Amos chapter 3, so please go back to verse 11, Amos 3. It starts with the word, therefore which is a connection point right, between what was just said and what is about to be said. So because of this, the following will happen. The indictment from verses 9 and 10 are the basis for the judgment in verse 11. So Amos 3.11 reads, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land, bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. So we see really a threefold attack that is coming against the nation of Israel. First, we have an unnamed army that will come into the land and surround the land. Uh, The invading army is not identified in this passage, nor to my knowledge is identified actually in the book of Amos, but we do know God says uh, an army will come in and surround the land. Second, You see, the army will bring down your defenses from you. Likely, this is a reference to like the walled cities. If you think back in this time period for protection, they would have very thick city walls, very high city walls that would be part of their defense system. And God is saying, uh, your fortified cities will be brought down. You know, think, for instance, of the nation of Israel when they do enter the promised land and the city of Jericho with very wide-walled cities and how the nation of Israel surrounded Jericho, and the walls came down through the, inter, uh, the the intervention of God, the supernatural work of God to bring those down. but So the second is that their defenses would be brought down, and then finally, the third phase of the attack, the enemy will plund, uh, plunder the strongholds of the nation of Israel. So that word strongholds, you've actually seen it four times in this passage. We see it A couple of times in verse 9, we see it in verse 10, we see it here in verse 11. It's kind of an interesting term that is used within Scripture. Amos uses that term a lot throughout his book of strongholds, and it can mean a few different things. Uh, It can mean like a high building within a city, and so when he says proclaim the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in Egypt, it would have been a high point in the city, a, a high building in the city that could have been used for kind of heralding news, for instance. It could be used of a building just because of its height, but part of the defense system. Again, if you're fighting, if you have the upper, uh, the, the higher ground, usually that's a good place to be when you're fighting. It could be part of a king's palace or a king's house at times, and it could also be used just as uh, residence for others as well, but typically those who'd be maybe a little higher in society. And so God is saying that these strongholds would be brought down. It seems as though what he's referring to is really the symbol of strength within the city, right? Uh, They would become known as symbolic of the prosperity of a particular city or or a group of people, right? And God actually says at one point, we'll get there here in a few weeks, but in Amos chapter 6, God actually says, I hate the strongholds of Jacob. And so when we get to that passage, we'll explain in a little more detail, but it seems that God doesn't necessarily hate the physical structure, but hates what it has come to represent, Uh, The the violence and robbery, again, in verse 10, that they are storing up in their strongholds, that is what God seems to hate. Some would even suggest that the city of Samaria itself would be considered a bit of a stronghold because of its natural positioning. It was actually positioned in the mountains. Uh, If you look back to verse 9, it says, you know, bring these other nations and witnesses around the mountains of Samaria. And so the people of Samaria likely thought that they had pretty good natural defenses against the enemies. They probably felt in some ways as though they were untouchable. And yet the interesting thing and the thing that hopefully gets us to sit up a little bit in our chair is that that God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring the adversary. I know that it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. God is the one who forecasts that the city will be brought down. And so part of the consequences of this is that the nation of Israel will lose control of their land. If you've uh, had the privilege to go to Israel, you know even today the significance of Israel being in their land. You know the importance in the Old Testament. right? We already read Genesis chapter 12 that I, God says, I will give you this land. They have an eternal covenant with God. That this is their land, and yet God said this enemy will come in and surround your land. You will no longer be in control of your land. Because of your stubbornness, because of your disobedience, you will be in bondage to another. From studying Scripture, we know that this happened probably roughly about 30 years after this prophecy is given to the people here in the book of Amos. We know the Assyrian army. So not the Philistines, not the Egyptians. Another nation came in, the Assyrians, uh, and they came and they destroyed the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer. They were eventually uh, overtaken by the Babylonians, a whole different nation, but the Assyrians did come in and basically take control over the northern empire and really scattered the people across the known world at that time as really a testimony of what God would do with the people who abandoned their God. So as one commentator says, kind of a summary of what's happening, the stronghold was filled with oppression and with violence and robbery. Thus, Israel had forfeited God's protection, and without him, all their natural defenses were useless. What were they putting their trust in? It certainly was not the Lord their God. They were remaining in their sin and walking in disobedience, and God even though he was patient, had gotten to the point where he said enough is enough. And so kind of as we finish our time this morning, let's consider some of the things we can learn about God, right? Let's consider the great lengths that God took to warn his people of the coming danger. I mean, prophecy after prophecy, and Amos is not the only book that has this. God talks about the coming danger and the impending destruction if they continue in their way. God calls witnesses, right? as like a visual picture of like, this is what you've become, right? These nations that you despise, these nations that you would never consider yourself equal to, this is what you have become. And yet they continued in their disobedience. God explains how entrenched that disobedience had come, right? He said, like, you don't even know right from wrong. That's how bad this has gotten. You are storing up for yourselves destruction, and yet they still didn't listen. And ultimately, God says, someone is going to come in and take over your land because of that. Like, these strongholds that you've built up, I'm going to tear those down. These walled cities, these high places, I'm going to tear them down. And yet, they still continued in their disobedience. And so, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about us? Let's just consider a few things here as we close. First, aren't you glad that God cares enough about us to send warnings. Let's not forget that. I know this passage, you walk out like, man, that was exciting. What an encouraging sermon that was. Hopefully we see through this that God, through his people, will send warnings, right? There's other warnings in Scripture where the people actually did turn from their ways, and they did fall on their face, and they did repent. Because God is long-suffering, right? He will put up with so much for the sake of His name and the sake of His people. However, God will not ignore sin. He is a holy God. Second, we learn from verse 9, of course, that Israel had sunk to a very low place. A very low place. They had become the very thing that they had despised. God was like holding a mirror up to their face to say, This is you. This is how depraved you are. I guess a question we could ask ourselves is if God held a mirror up to our face of of this is what you are, what would it look like, right? And we're not trusting in, well, I I said a prayer one day, or my parents, or my grandparents, or I go to the right church, or I, I live in the Bible Belt, right? But if God truly held up to say, This is who I would call as witnesses of what you're doing. What would that look like? Right? What would that look like? If I really saw my true nature, would I be excited about what I saw? Third, we learn that God cares about his people and cares about how they're behaving. Right? We see in verse 10 uh, that God says they're storing up for themselves the wrong thing, that they don't know how to do right. He cares about how we treat the lowly among us, the lowest within our society, the oppression that he's, we see in verse 9 and that we saw from Amos chapter 2. How are we p- treating those people who, they can't bring us anything, right? I, I teach some leadership classes at Liberty at times, and one of the questions is, you know, who, who are you hanging out with and why? And if it's just so you can get ahead in life, that, that's a problem, right? If it's just for what you can get out of it, what about investing in others? who Maybe they're not as far as long as you are, but aren't you glad that others invested in you when you had nothing to offer them, right? And so how are we treating those in society that really they can't bring us anything, but yet we can show the love of Christ to them? uh, Or do we put them aside and say, actually, I'm going to benefit by my oppression of them? Uh, Again, God is very patient, but it seems throughout Scripture a theme is He does not like it (laughs) When people take advantage of the underprivileged. And then finally, God cares about what we're storing up, right? So, verse 11 talks about that. Uh, hopefully, as you read that, your mind maybe goes to the New Testament passages like Matthew chapter 6, right? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. God actually cares about those things. Let it not be said of us that we are storing up for ourselves destruction but that we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven that ultimately will bring value and bring God glory. So hopefully today as we walk out of here, we, we understand the significance of our sin. We understand the significance of God dealing with his children. Uh, again, it's not all doom and gloom. Although the prophets sometimes can feel that way, we can learn about the very nature of God. I want to close by reading Psalm 101. It's a psalm I just often go to, um, and, and I appreciate how the psalmist just is intentional, right? So you might say, like, well, man, Gabe, that's pretty uh, depressing. What can we do? Well, Deuteronomy 6, teach the things of God from generation to generation. Walk in obedience. Well, we see King David, right? One of the standards of the kings of Israel right? The time of Amos would have been after this. King David would have written these words when the kingdom was united, uh, known as a man after God's own heart, even though he messed up many times. And yet when he was called on his sin, he did repent, right? He humbled himself. And so listen to what David says concerning his commitment and desire to walk in integrity as we close out this morning. Psalm 101, Just notice the intentionality of the wording. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. When will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. May we live our lives with an intentionality to serve our risen Savior, to take the commands that we know and live those out as we walk in obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you that you have taken the initiative to reveal something about yourself To us, I thank you that we have your warnings from Scripture. I thank you that we can learn from the warnings that you gave to others, and yet in the midst of that, how we can also see that it's a warning to us. God, I pray that we are known as a church that walks in obedience. God, I pray that we're known as a church who cares for the poor within our midst, the poor within our community. May we reach out with your love, May we reach out with your gospel message, and may we do this for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.